0: When I meet with a couple to do premarital counseling, one question I always ask is, how did your family deal with conflict? When something happened that hurt, when there was a fight, when there was a breach in the relationship, big or small, what did people do or not do? What did people say or not say? Was there screaming and yelling? Were there threats of leaving forever? Words that may not have been meant in the moment, but which get etched on a frightened child's soul. Was there silence? Stonewalling? Just ignoring each other until the anger passed? Was there avoidance? Almost a pretending like it never happened and would never be spoken of again. Or was it talked about? Was there space to acknowledge the pain, to process it out loud, to hear and be heard, and finally to apologize and reconcile? How we learned to deal with conflict as children is very often how we deal with conflict as adults. It is inevitable in any human relationship, whether it be parent, child, spouse and spouse, sister and brother, even pastor and parishioner, when people disappoint one another. In the same way that we are all dust and to dust we will return, we are also all sinners. Loved and forgiven sinners, for sure, but sinners still the same. What do we do when we don't live up to who we say we are? When our words or our actions cause another person pain? Do we talk about it or do we hide In shame. We know that Simon Peter and Jesus had a special but also complicated relationship. Peter was the first of the disciples to really understand who Jesus was. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. It's what earned him the name Peter, Petra, or Rock. Peter met Jesus in his fishing boat with his brother Andrew when Jesus told him to follow him and fish for people. Peter's faith faltered on when he tried to walk on water towards Jesus in the storm. Lord, save me, he cried on that day. Peter saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Peter promised to be loyal to Jesus even unto death until he didn't. Three times. That last one, can a relationship even survive that? Can that level of betrayal, I do not even know the man, can that ever be healed? Should it be healed? We get the sense that Peter doesn't think so. The only thing he can do from the moment that cock crowed three times, as the story says, was to weep bitterly and sit in his own shame. Today we find him back in that place that symbolized his former life, before he even knew Jesus, his boat. (laughs) A place that felt safe, perhaps, because it was before the betrayal, before the guilt and shame. Where's your boat? Where's the place that you go when it doesn't feel safe to exist in the present moment? When you aren't sure if you are really welcome anymore, or wanted anymore, or loved anymore? Where is your escape? Is it really an escape at all? Or like that locked room that the disciples were huddled in last week, is it more just a hiding place? The risen Christ meets Peter in that place this week. The place that seems to say, not only did I claim to never know this man, it probably would have been better if I never did know him, because after what I've done, he will never be part of my life again. And so Jesus addresses him by his old name, Simon. Perhaps the only name he could even hear in that moment. But what comes next is not a scolding. It's not a how could you speech, even if such a speech were warranted. But after all, as Peter later confesses, Jesus already knows everything. He knows how Peter could, he knows how we could. All Jesus asks Peter is one question because it's the only question that matters. Do you love me? Those words both say everything and hold everything, don't they? You really only ask a person that question if you love them first, right? Peter, I love you. Do you love me? And by framing the conflict that way, Jesus opens up a space that Peter may have never known or felt in his entire life before, a space where he could acknowledge the harm that he had caused, but not in a way that made him feel like he was utterly cut off forever, the way that Judas felt, and which sadly caused him to take his own life. Peter may have never known that it's possible for someone to be hurt and still love you, to be angry without rejecting you, to need some time apart without forever going away. That is what the empty tomb reveals, after all. What looks permanent, what looks irredeemable, what looks like estrangement and death sealed in forever is burst open so that new life, can emerge. Simon, son of John, do you love me? You get the sense that Peter is so knee-deep in his shame that he can't even really answer correctly. You know that I love you. A response that feels wholly inadequate, but which Jesus accepts anyway. And he allows Peter to say it two more times, one for each denial Not to redeem himself as if such a thing were even possible, but to (coughs) sort of ritually put that behind them forever. It's sort of as if Jesus is saying, do you get it now? Do you see what's happening? I want you to hear yourself saying those words and me receiving them so that you can know that you have not destroyed this relationship. You have not broken the bond between us. I have not lost faith in you. You are still my disciple and my brother. And there's not anything that you can do that will change that. And then he says to Peter what he said to him that very first time. Follow me. Leave this boat and everything it represents. Leave behind the baggage you are carrying. You will not be forever defined by your worst moment. You, imperfect disciple that you are, are still called. Feed my sheep. The reconciliation that happens between Jesus and Peter today is a picture of what happens between Jesus and us. You and me and all who gather at this breakfast table spread before us this morning, and all who would laugh at the thought that they are even invited Here, Jesus makes the first move, as he always does, welcoming us, forgiving us, and giving us a tangible sign of his love. But then also sending us, trusting us to go and do the same with each other, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. If Jesus can trust our wandering little hearts, if he can accept our wobbly attempts at love, then perhaps we can accept it from others. If we can be restored to relationship with Jesus, the one who knows us completely and still invites us to the table, then perhaps we can also be restored to others whom we have let down and who have let us down. Perhaps all of us who have ever denied knowing each other, either through words or actions, can learn to trust that there is a stronger bond at work here than anything we can come up with. And maybe that's why this room, this place where we meet on Sunday, is called a nave, which is, of course, the word for a boat. (laughs) Just like Peter, this is where God finds us especially when we are lost and alone and don't know where else to go. But also like Jesus, this is where we are gathered into the net of God's great love, a net that even though it holds 153 types of fish, which was every single variety of fish known to humankind in Jesus' day, it does not break. It does not break because Jesus' love does not break his faith in us, his trust in us, it is there long before and long after ours has given up. And although the thought of this sometimes causes me to laugh and shake my head, it also gives me goosebumps. Because it means that those three most important words in the English language, I love you, are also the most trustworthy ones. They are for real. And like Peter, I don't think I'll ever tire of hearing them over and over again. Amen.